So welcome everybody. I'm Professor Ben Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And today we're delighted to have one of the world's leading clinical and research experts in psoriatic arthritis, former president of Grappa, still on the executive, I think, Phil, and uh, Professor Philip Meese from the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle. And we'll be talking about his recently published paper, the 50s in the Rheumatology Today Journal, the 56-week data from the select PS2 upadacitinib trial in psoriatic arthritis. So, Philip, just before we start, can you just fill us in what's happened to Jacks in the US with COVID? Um, what do you do with vaccination? Do you stop for five days like the ACR recommends? And has the oral surveillance data really changed the playing field for Jacks in the US? So that's a triple bunger to start with. Yeah, so uh, yes, uh, I think most people are trying to fulfill the ACR guidelines of um, briefly interrupting JAK inhibitor use while uh, getting vaccinated. To be honest with our patients, um, this issue has already passed because uh, the uh, great majority, nearly 80% of the population of Seattle has been vaccinated. Uh, and so um, uh, we're well beyond it now. Uh, but if there are any remaining uh, that are on JAK inhibitors, we advise them to just hold it for a very brief period. In terms of uh, the impact of oral surveillance, I don't think it's filtered down into the general uh, patient population or even for that matter to all rheumatologists. They're, they're, they may be vaguely aware of it, uh, but I don't think it's had a, a huge impact on use of medications. Uh, as you know, uh, we this was data focused on the tofacitinib trial. So it might have a little impact on tofacitinib, but I don't think that it's impacting our use of upadacitinib. Okay. And are the jacks still very popular in the US? Yes. I think that the um, the effectiveness of these drugs... The fact that they're once a day oral makes it very easy. Uh, yeah, they're, I think they, they tend to be very popular. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the select PS, PSA2 trial. Can you tell us a little bit about the background of that particular study? And then we'll talk about the paper itself. So the, uh, the trial in, what engaged uh, psoriatic arthritis patients with active disease who had been on at least one biologic DMARD. And as it turned out, roughly 41% of the patients uh, were on um, at least two uh, TNF inhibitors. Uh, and uh, th there was a separate abstract that looked at the fact that uh, patients, even if they had been on several previous biologics, they did almost as well, if not as well, uh, in various measures as the patients that had just been on one. So it was a slightly more refractory population, all with multiple clinically active domains of disease. Uh, and uh, the, the good news was that uh, in the primary outcome at, at the 24-week mark, uh, the patients uh, in all of the clinical domains uh, that were measured had uh, improvement uh, in, and actually more improvement in some of the domains than we've seen with other JAK inhibitors, such as the skin domain where um, two-thirds of the patients 
had achieved uh, past the 75 response, for example. Okay, and 56 week data, um, do you find it helpful seeing that you had 25% dropouts? I wonder why such a high dropout rate for this particular study. I think the Gaselkumab only had three or 4% at 12 months as a comparator. I don't have a good explanation for it other than uh, there are a whole variety of reasons why people uh, drop out of trials. Sometimes it's based on either efficacy or safety, but sometimes it just simply has to do uh, with moving away from a clinical site or, or other reasons. So um, that, that uh, hasn't bothered me so much in the interpretation of the data. Uh, although I, I do think that it's important to be aware that it is uh, three quarters of the population rather than the whole population. Often they say those doing well continue to do well and makes everything look very rosy. But can you tell us a little bit about um, the results? Um, well, let's start with the outcome measures. All the standard outcome measures were measured? Yes. So the usuals, ACR responses, as well as achievement of minimal disease activity, uh, the uh, skin responses, such as PASC 75, 90, and even 100, uh, were uh, measured. Uh, function as measured by HACC, uh, quality of life as measured by SF36, fatigue as measured by the SF36. So yes, it was the, the full repertoire of, uh, of outcome measures. And the basic take-home message, Peter, was that uh, the, achieve, the uh, responses that were achieved at the 24-week mark were maintained out at the week 56 mark. Excellent. Um, I noticed they did some BAS dyes, but are they helpful without imaging, Philip? That's a controversial subject, as you know. <laughs> so um, there's been uh, one of the recent uh, papers we, we have is that when you look at the BAS dye results overall in a patient group with psoriatic arthritis, one cohort that has axial disease and the other that does not, they all have bad BASTI scores and they all improve with treatment, uh, regardless of whether the presence of spine disease. So they're, they're, it's, a, it's a, an imprecise measure when it comes to uh, the trying to really ascertain axial improvement. If you drill down to the, uh, the spine pain question, which is question number two, that's actually a little bit more reliable. And we saw improvements uh, uh, that were uh, in very significant in, in that with that particular question. Uh, so I think the key point with, uh, with UPA is to know that there's a separate ankylosing spondylitis program going on that shows significant efficacy. So I, I would tend to extrapolate from that and know and and be able to say to my patient that I think they'll probably respond uh, when they have axial PSA. But to really get at it, we would need to have a separate axial PSA to, to know reliably how, how much they improve and, and with characteristic MRI changes. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about the ACR results. And at least in our country, we have to have reached a certain level of response by 12 weeks to get continued supply. How long should we give 
uber a chance in PSA to get the 50s and the 70s and the best results, you know, before all those responses plateau off, if you know what I mean. Yes. So I think that we saw the great, the great majority of response uh, in this trial by 12 weeks, um, certainly by 16 weeks. So I would, I would say these days I would probably give a JAK inhibitor full 16 weeks to see what the sort of apex of improvement of the ACR20 response will be. But typically at that point, the ACR50 and 70 are still climbing. In the 56-week data, with the 15 milligram dose that uh, we are anticipating will be the approved dose, we saw ACR20 response in a full 80% of patients, ACR50 response in 53% of patients, ACR70 response in 31%. Now, this is observed data, so a little bit higher than what we would anticipate if it was an NRI analysis. PASI 75 was 67%, really, uh, I, I think, for a JAK inhibitor, a very robust um, effect. And then PASI 100, which is complete clearance, was seen in 35% of patients. Minimal disease activity was 38.6. So these are the, I think, really consistently robust results across the, uh, across the domains. Very impressive for a TNFIR difficult patient population because we would have expected 50, 25, 15 or something. So that's really yes. quite a dramatic response. You said it didn't matter if you failed one, two or three biologics. Did background methotrexate make any difference? Did, did they do better with concomitant MTX? They really, uh, that really didn't have an impact. The results were very similar with those that ha were on methotrexate or those that were not. So that's a nice result as well. Um, and the other interesting thing from the RA studies is the pain response with JAKS. Were you able to break down the ACR components? And was there this very strong physician global, patient global pain response. Right. Unfortunately, so you didn't have an active comparator. You just had placebo for a little while. Right. So I'm looking at the poster now to see if we had a separate graph for pain. I know that in the primary uh, endpoint, both pain and fatigue showed very significant improvements. But I, I, I apologize that I'm not. Uh, oh, here we go. Uh, uh, here we go. Yes. Uh, the uh, well, it's a, it's a, in text form. The pain uh, NRS improvement was minus two point six and minus two point eight uh, uh, from the baseline, uh, and the uh, facet the fatigue improvement was six and seven respectively. So these are uh, what what most patients would consider to be a highly meaningful change. Excellent. So maybe tricks that you don't have to have. Um, very difficult patient population, and there's always sort of a dose-responsive effect, 15 to 30. Would you ever use 30 for a short period of time in these very difficult patients who have failed three biologics, or is the safety side not worth it? So we did see a dose uh, response in safety. There were more cases of serious infection, and there were more cases of zoster in the... So Personally, I would probably shy away from use of the 30 milligram dose. And besides, I think that it is not going to be available to us readily. And so I think that 
the take-home message is probably not. Probably not safe. So let's talk about safety. Any signals we should be aware of? The usual adverse effects you expect from jacks you saw? Anything different or special stretched out over 56 weeks? I wouldn't say so. Uh, there were um, the serious infection rate uh, over that period of time uh, in the 15 milligram dose was hovered right around three uh, events per 100 patient years, which is what we've been seeing in other in the rheumatoid program, for example. Uh, zoster rate was uh, slightly higher th uh, than that, uh, and the uh, it was uh, 3.8. Uh, actually, I should mention the serious infection rate was 2.6, so slightly less than three. And the um, and there was again a dose-dependent rate with the, with more of both the serious infections and zoster with the higher dose. There was no there were no cases of TB, which I know is important in your part of the world, for example, uh, further north in Asia. And then uh, GI perforations, there were none. Uh, so. Um, I think that overall it was consistent with the data that we've seen uh, in uh, earlier in PSA and also in the um, in the rheumatoid program. Excellent. Um, what about this CPK rise is one of those sort of coincidental, if you like, rather than clinically significant things. Any idea why it happens, Phil? I don't. We've seen that in various programs. Uh, we even saw it in with adalimumab, we've seen it with other drugs, uh, other uh, JAK inhibitors. And I, I've never really heard a good explanation for why we see this. And as you say, we haven't seen a clinical correlation with the rise in CPK. Yeah, a couple of myalgias reported, but no rhabdo for sure. Now, given oral surveillance, MACE, malignancy, BTE, any comments from this particular study? VTE, there was one case in each dose group uh, of DVT or PE, and uh, they were both in uh, patients who had uh, risk factors. Uh, so uh, what do you do statistically with one case? And then the same was true uh, with MACE. So I, I can't say that from this particular trial, we're seeing a signal related to MACE or VTE. Excellent. So. Um, how would you summarize the what clinicians should take away? And uh, really, I think you've got imaging in the in another PSA select paper. You've sure. got all the domains covered: dactylitis, emphysitis. You're doing axial in the AS program. Um, no uveitis data. We don't know if it negative, neutral. No IBD issues. Any. Any sort of take-home message from the 56 week? I think the 56 week data gives us more confidence, uh, especially on the safety side, uh, to be using this on a uh, and have confidence that it will be relatively safe, as well as being quite efficacious. Uh, the the high rate of achievement of minimal disease activity uh, relative to some of the programs we've seen, I think, is a testament to that. So I think it's going to be, when finally approved, going to be quite a, a, a nice addition to our armamentarium of medications for PSA. And I think that's the final question. Where should it fit in our treatment algorithm? 
um, where would you place it? Um, and some heads to heads would help, but I'm not sure we're going to see those. So where do we start using oral jacks in PSA? So I see two main buckets. One is for the patient who is uh, failing methotrexate and wants to move on to something more effective, but isn't quite wanting to move on to a parenteral medication. Uh, and so uh, having an oral option that's highly efficacious and will inhibit structural damage progression as well as taking care of skin disease and so on is I think going to be very attractive. Uh, the other bucket is going to be obviously the patients who've been around the block many times. They've already been on one, two TNFs, maybe an IL-17 inhibitor. And this, the data from this trial has shown that even in that uh, more refractory population, uh, it, it can be effective. So I would, I would, could, could position it uh, in many places along the the spec, the pathway of treatment. Excellent. So. Thank you again, Philip, for your time. We greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or where you get your podcast media from. Give us some feedback. Let us know what you think and let your friends know about it. Thank you so much, Philip. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Peter. Cheers. Thank all you. the best.